David Albright is a physicist, a former nuclear inspector for the International Atomic Energy Agency, an expert on nuclear weapons and nuclear proliferation, and the founder and president of the Institute for Science and International Security, also known as the Good ISIS. He has an important new book out, Iran's Perilous Pursuit of Nuclear Weapons. It's based on the secret archive of the nuclear weapons program of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Israeli spies located that archive in a warehouse in Tehran and spirited much of it out of the country. What David Albright has to tell us in his book is alarming and should have a significant impact on the policies of the Biden administration vis-a-vis -vis Iran's rulers. David is with us today, as is Andrea Stricker, who worked with him at the Good ISIS for 12 years and who is now a fellow at FDD, where she conducts research on nuclear weapons proliferation and illicit procurement networks. We're pleased you're with us too, here, Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are Every no U.S. Rules. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence, that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. David, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, Andrea, always good to talk with you. So look, here's one of the things I think people find complicated, okay? Iran's rulers have never acknowledged that they have nuclear ambitions. They say they just want nuclear power air-conditioned hospitals in the summer and heat schools in the winter. They don't want to burn too much oil. And then people hear or read that the Supreme Leader has issued a fatwa against nuclear weapons, doesn't like them. And then they hear that, okay, maybe in the past, Iran's rulers wanted nukes, but, but not now. And then they hear that regime hardliners want nukes, but there are moderates in the regime who would rather have a good economy and better lives for average Iranians. And then they hear that the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, says it just wants to have full confidence that Iran's nuclear program is peaceful. So that sounds like the IAEA isn't, isn't sure. But these messages or these memes or whatever you call them, they're not really based on the evidence, certainly not the evidence you've in-depth examined. No, they're, they're not. not. Really and, and reality, it's, Iran mean? has taken the position to just consistently deny ever having had nuclear weapons program or intending to have a nuclear weapons program. And this lie uh, convinces a lot of people. And, and you mentioned the Supreme Leader's fatwa. Um, that fatwa in, in analyzing the chronology of it kind of fits in with a scenario that, that, that in 2003, Iran was in a sense caught and was very nervous about the impact of a US troops in Iraq U.S. troops in Afghanistan, and it decided to not build nuclear weapons as it originally intended, and to try to hide evidence of that while at the same time preserving that program. And the fatwa came out in, from my understanding, 2003, 2004, and I see it as part of the cover-up, that it was 
and 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 this was a a program that had great deal of consensus among the leadership. Rouhani, the current president, was there at the birth of this crash nuclear weapons program in the late 1990s as the national security advisor to the supreme leader. Um, the defense minister at the time, Shamkani, now is the national security advisor to the supreme leader. And so you have a great deal of continuity covering hardliners and what would be called moderates behind this program. And I think the part of the key to the solution, and it's, it's just part of the key, is robust International Atomic Energy Agency inspections, that they have the tools and the experience to try to hammer open this really tough nut um, to expose Iran's nuclear weapons program. And, and, it's, and that has been a very frustrating process for the inspectors. And, and it's not getting the kind of support from the international community and particularly even the Biden administration that it deserves. I want to, we're going to come back. I want to come back to that. Let's spend a little bit more history. When uh, we talk about 2003 and just remind people, U.S. troops were in Afghanistan, U.S. troops were in Iraq. So this was not a matter of diplomatic persuasion. Uh, the Iranian government was scared. Oh, they could be here too if, we, uh, if we're not careful. They didn't decide nuclear weapons are a bad idea forever. We'll never want to have that. But they thought, if I'm understanding correctly, was that, okay, let's put a hold on this for now. It's kind of too dangerous to play with. We can get back to it later. Um, is, that a, is that a fair way to? Yeah, I think so. Because what you had was a, a deeply committed regime to building five nuclear weapons, building a nuclear test site so they could conduct an underground test, uh, essentially if it wanted, they wanted to demonstrate their capability, but they, they could have just built the weapons and. And, and kept them. They, the weapons were, four of them were gonna be put on Shahib-3 missiles. The weapons design program was very sophisticated. They had a, a successful design at the end of the program. They still needed to do some of the work. Um, they didn't have a source of weapon-grade uranium. We should come back to that. So they weren't, they weren't within months of being able to build nuclear weapons in 2003. Um, and, with fears of military invasion, in a sense, they could look at what the administration, the Bush administration did with Iraq on, on a WMD program that didn't exist. Iran had a nuclear weapons program and, and could only envision what could happen to it. And, and, and it made this decision before the whole insurgency developed in Iraq, uh, kind of the, the, where the US would be unable to really do something next door. But it, but it, at the time in summer of 03, it had a very big impact to convince the Iranian government not to build those weapons. But we don't think they gave it up. And, and, it's, and in the archive documentation, um, and Andrea worked on this with me, was discussions of how to continue the program to better camouflage it, to work on the bottlenecks that existed. Um, interestingly, one of the things that they continued on was the facility to make weapon-grade uranium. One of the surprises to me in the archive was a picture showing the Fort, what we now call the Fordow Enrichment Site Support Area. And, and we were able to 
analyze that picture and relate it to current satellite imagery and satellite imagery from 2003 and 2004 and show that indeed that was the site. And so what we now know as Fordow was the site it was part of this crash nuclear weapons program to make weapon grade uranium. And it and the construction continued after the so-called end of this program. I'm gonna play devil's advocate or maybe uh, in this context, Satan's advocate, uh, Andrea. If, if somebody says, look, uh, the US has nuclear weapons, Israel has nuclear weapons. We kind of know that even though they don't quite acknowledge that. Why shouldn't the Islamic Republic of Iran have nuclear weapons. What, what would you be your response? Well, we think about Iran's activities in the region now, its support for proxies, its support for terrorism, its, its involvement in Lebanon, Iraq, Syria, its launching of rockets at Israel via Hamas. Uh, I think Iran with nuclear weapons would only embolden it. It would give it cover to do more. And so that's why administration after administration in the United States and other governments take it so seriously to stop Iran's nuclear program. Also, under its own treaty obligations that it's undertaken freely, um, the NPT, for, and explain what that is, Iran has promised not to develop or acquire nuclear weapons. Uh, have they not? That's right. So under the NPT, anybody that signs up commits never to develop nuclear weapons. Now, what's interesting is that the 2015 Nuclear Accord or the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, JCPOA, um, it, it sort of had Iran double promise not to make nuclear weapons, even though we know that it had been working on them. So under the NPT, states sign up to what's called a Comprehensive Safeguards Agreement or a CSA, and that requires them to declare anywhere that they use nuclear material, they produce it, uh, they have to list all the sites for the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, so that the IAEA can go inspect and confirm that countries aren't diverting nuclear material to non-peaceful uses. These are legal obligations under the NPT. So these are separate from what the JCPOA entails, which is more of a political commitment. And as such, they endure regardless of the accord's status. Okay, with that as back and David, I think I want you to tell the story of how this archive was compiled and why it was compiled by the Iranians and how the Israelis got hold of it. And finally, how you obtained access to study it. I think people may know that if they've read about this, but they may, but they may not. So let's go over there. It's a great story besides. Yeah, they, yeah I think the, the, the origin of the archive isn't completely clear. I mean, what, what appears to have happened is, is, is that during the um, negotiation of the JCPOA, the Iranians decided that they were gonna need to consolidate um, their, their information, their documentation. And so they apparently collected it. And, th and this is based on largely what the Israelis told me that they collected it and put it into the, essentially were, were um, shipping containers on wheels uh, that could be moved re relatively quickly. And they put all this information um, into these containers and then put it at a location. And the Israelis learned about that location. Um, they also learned that the Iranians were moving it to this to another site. Um, 
And so they were able to track it to the new site. And they decided that, that rather than just watch it, that it would be best to try to seize it and take as much as they possibly could. Um, they had some inside information, although I think it was sporadic. They understood the significance of the documents. They had some knowledge of the layout. I mean, the documents are in very um, heavy duty safes. There were about um, 20 or 30 of them in these shipping containers, um, very hard to break into. And, and they decided you know, to launch the operation in January of 2018. There were, you know, I'm sure hundreds of people involved over this couple years of observing and planning this operation. Um, and they went in, the site was very distinctive um, of a secret Iranian site. What you have is there won't be a lot of security because that's a signature of a secret site. Very few people in Iran knew about this site. And that's another signature of, um, of, a, of an important secret site. And so they, because if there's no physical security at night, because it, it would have been a tip off to, to intelligence agencies that this was indeed a site. Um, and it, that you know, the Israelis were able to take control of the security system, leave it on, but able but to get through it and spend the evening and night cracking the, the safes. And it, and I saw the equipment used. It looks like simple equipment, but it's extremely hard to break into these safes. And they managed to break into six overnight and carry away a whole set of, of documents, about 50,000 pages worth in, in, in various colored binders. They happened to find a, a collection of CDs and they, they didn't expect that. And they actually had good communications. They went called back to Tel Aviv and were told to take those too. And, and, and they, it's fortunate they did because a lot of they the- Called back to Tel Aviv while they were doing, in the midst of, of breaking into this warehouse and stealing things, they were making make a phone call and say, hey, shall I grab these, uh, That's these right. CDs they, as and, well, guys? No, and, they, and they've emphasized they had good communication. I mean, they, and, uh, um, and so they, they did take it and it, it turned out to be an extremely fortunate uh, decision. Um, they left on schedule. Um, they, they had time, given the time of, uh, that they could spend in there. They wanted to get out at least two hours before the, the daytime guards would show up. Um, they left, they expected some of their people would be caught. So they divided up the set of documents. Um, and then they left in some way that they were not willing to talk about. Um, all the documents Cars or trucks, back. Uber, whatever. Yeah, they, that's right, called an Iranian Uber. But, uh, but all the documents got back to, to Israel and no one was caught. And it may, and it, um, Iran obviously was very uh, disturbed when they found this site broken into. Um, it's not clear they, they knew who did it until Prime Minister Netanyahu gave his press conference in late April. And uh, you, are, as a, as a, as a or the leading researcher in this area, you obviously wanted access to these files and computer disks and all that. Um, but it wasn't so easy, right? To, I mean, the Israelis were not so keen necessarily to share right away. And of course, everything had to be translated. I mean, it's a big enterprise. This is not like you know, getting your book, taking it to the beach, and sitting there and, and reading through it and. And now you know what, what the truth is, right? This You had to figure out what was in there uh, that was new and exciting and different and 
Yeah, and it was and it was challenging. The Israelis would brief me. I mean, on the day that Netanyahu gave his talk uh, in in April of 2018, I, I was part of a small group in Washington that got a, a telephone briefing, but they resisted our requests for documents. And we can do our own translation. I mean, of course, we appreciate theirs, but they translate from Farsi to Hebrew. And, mm. and I, <laughs> I, I learned some Hebrew over the years, but certainly can't read technical documents in Hebrew, let alone barely read a restaurant menu. Um, and so the, so the media was given documents. And the first ones we got were actually um, in the set of documents given to American, well, German and then American journalists in the in the spring and summer of 2018. And, and the journalists had a very hard time making any sense out of it. And that's partly why we would get them is, is to help them. But also it, it just, they realized the ones who shared that that they had barely scraped the surface of what was in the in the documents they received. And, and we used that to start producing reports. Um, initially, we we used the English translate or the translations provided by the Israelis into English, although we were starting to check them. And then and then after we published, they were willing to host me in, in Tel Aviv. And I ended up making four trips. And then we set up during COVID time ways of communicating um, uh, electronically and and through couriers to, to uh, gain additional information. And we also, we decided to set up our own ability to translate. And that was key because many of the documents, most of them in fact were, that we received in the end were in Farsi. And, and it, a visit to Israel could involve several hours of discussing these, this information with, with the Israeli, um, the analysts going through the archive. Uh, and then and be given a disc with with information on it. And, and there would be a short presentation by the Israelis of what's in the on the disc. But essentially they the disc was they generated based on questions that I'd asked them. And so the the we weren't given, they didn't beyond what we got from the journalists, um, most of what we got was as a result of our own research interests to try to understand the archive. And often they would say, no. I mean, they, they would say, this is proliferation sensitive. I would see things, you know, um, people. We were interested in the names of, of people because there's hundreds and hundreds of names of people who were part of the nuclear weapons program. And they would only give me a sample of those. They wouldn't give me the whole, whole list. Uh, they gave it to the International Atomic Energy Agency, for example, or some other governments, but they viewed some information as too sensitive. Nuclear weapons design information, they uh, categorically refused to share much of that. Andrew, let me bring you in for a minute. As you were following this, you, I'm sure you saw there were in the media, there were a lot of people, journalists, academics, and others saying, oh, there's nothing new here. This is old news. Move along, folks. Nothing here to see. Uh, that was, in some cases, I don't know, wrong or, or, or maybe intentionally deceptive? What, what was your interpretation? Yeah, I think we view that as sort of a wild claim. I mean, this is the biggest goldmine of intelligence information about a country's nuclear weapons program that you could possibly ask for. So this is basically um, a trove of documentation that fills in what 
uh, the IEA knew about just a little bit, what, what governments knew somewhat, and it sort of fills out the contours of everything that was, that was missing. Of course, we don't, we're not able to see everything and the Israelis weren't able to capture everything. But yeah, to say that there was nothing new, I think their, their assessment was that we, we, we assumed the worst in this situation. We assumed they had all this. So that's, a, that's what some of them were saying. Um, but certainly some were trying to dismiss it for pol political reasons. Yeah, and, and David, if you could, for one yeah. quick thing, when we went through, did the assessment and we were interested in the sites we obviously didn't know. And I would ask the Israelis, did you know about this site? And, and, and in our count, um, we looked at, let's say, create a list of 20 some important nuclear weapons production sites. Because in the end, this was to build five weapons, but to be able to build a lot more. And so they had these, this production complex. Half of the sites were not known to the Israelis. And, and I would push them, you know, does the U.S. know? And, you know I, and the answer I got was, what, in a sense, not always the most direct answer, but the implication was Western intelligence did not know about half the sites that were in these, uh, represented in, in this archive. So now you know a, a, a greater number, maybe not all, but maybe uh, of sites where nuclear weapons development has taken place. How many sites are there and how many have IAE inspectors actually visited? Yeah, well, we didn't count them all. I mean, there, there's tens of sites involved in this. We looked for the major ones and came up with a list of around 20, 23. Um, only three sites, three or four sites have been visited by the IAEA. And one was, was a cursory visit of Parchin, uh, right? before the implementation of the JCPOA where, where the Iranians actually took the samples. They wouldn't let the IA do it. And it was a heavily sanitized site. Um, but it's only a small fraction that have been visited. And it's and typically if if the IA was allowed to do its job, it may not visit all of them, but it it would visit most of them. It would try to meet with the people who had worked there. They may have moved on. Uh, they may obviously are not at that old site, um, but they have other jobs. The IA would interview those people and Iran has essentially refused. If this is maybe a hard question, but if, but if you look, if I ask you the top line of what the archives reveal, maybe the, I mean, there's dozens of things obviously, but, but maybe the, just a few of the ones that are really, you know, the headlines, of what you learned. I mean, one I think was that Iran's rulers have been violating their obligations under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, have been violating their obligations. Um, I mean, and have always have always had a nuclear weapons program, an illicit one and a secret one. And that's always been the case. I mean, that's that, that's one top line, I guess, although I think you probably knew that before it started. What else did you say? Wow, this was news to me. Yeah, one of which, and it surprised the Israelis too, that we talked to was that, that the, the nuclear weapons program, the program to build, design and develop the weapon itself is quite sophisticated. It's not a, they're not copying a bomb design. They've really mastered the thinking through of, and the theoretical work, the practical work of, of building nuclear weapons. Uh, they, they, as I mentioned before, they had a few tasks to finish, 
but it's mostly the tasks that you need to finish before you actually manufacture them uh, on a regular basis. So they, they had this, this bomb program. And what that means is that they, if they do decide to build weapons now, they're a lot closer to it. And, and so one of the surprises to me was Iran got much further on building nuclear weapons than I thought, and their weapons were more advanced. Um, you know, the other things is, one is we're trying to think through what is a nuclear weapons program. And, and I think one of the mistakes made in the United States um, is that if you're not building them, then you don't have a program. And, and we would say that based on the archive and the information we collected um, of the period from the crash program ending in 03 up to today, which includes a lot of information collected by the International Atomic Energy Agency, the media, um, they have a program to be prepared to build nuclear weapons and to do it in short order. We, we, we use the phrase, they can build nuclear weapons on demand. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The, um, the JCPOA, I think this is confusing to people too, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which I don't think, it, which I think we can say is not a plan of action, it's not comprehensive. It's, but the Iran deal that President Obama concluded without congressional approval, they were, most members of Congress didn't think it was a good thing. You, what you keep hearing, or kept hearing from the Obama administration, you hear from the, the Biden administration now, is that this deal uh, does or will cut off all paths to a nuclear weapon. Um, Andrew, I'll start with you on this, but it, that's just not true, isn't it? I mean, at best, and maybe not for sure, it slows progress along those paths. The restrictions in the deal sunset, and I think what sunset means is they disappear, and at that point, Iran's rulers can obtain nuclear weapons, or as David says, the capability to produce them on demand. Um, meanwhile, they can be working on ICBMs, which are intercontinental ballistic missiles, which suggests missiles that can go from one continent to another, including to ours, to target uh, victims anywhere in the world. Uh, is there any... <laughs> I mean, is there any validity I'm not seeing to, to this claim that that's it, get the JCPOA, JCPOA in place, get rejoin it. Uh, yeah, we have to worry about other illicit destabilizing activities, but nuclear weapons, whew, we don't have to worry about that anymore. It's done. We know that's not true, don't we? Not, not least from the, from the archives, but from other evidence as well. Andrea Starr, right. David, chime in. Right. So I think people hope the JCPOA would be a political commitment, mostly that Iran would abandon nuclear weapons ambitions, that sanctions relief and being intertwined in the international community and international econ economy, they might, uh, they might abide by international rules. But you're right, the JCPOA really just kicks the can down the road. So the, the sunsets, the end of limitations, those begin um, they've started already. We've already lost something called the arms embargo that was put in place uh, by the UN. So now Iran can import and export military-related goods. So this is something that was separate. It was put in under the UN resolution that implements the JCPOA uh, called 2231. 
Uh, next up, we're going to be losing the missile embargo under 2231. So Iran will then be able to import, export missiles. You know, it does that anyway, but it's going to, going to be able to make big deals with Russia and China to upgrade its missile program. So then the, the nuclear sunsets, those kick in starting in about 2024. So Iran will be able to start deploying and testing uh, advanced centrifuges, which produce enriched uranium. It's going to be able to test its more advanced models that it's been working on all these years. Uh, and then by 2031, it will have no more restrictions on its ability to deploy centrifuges. It could even stockpile weapon-grade uranium if it wants. Yeah, and I, I think one way to think about it too is that when we talk about this in the book, there's three pillars of making a nuclear weapon. There's the you have to have the nuclear explosive material, which for Iran is first order is, well, the first stage is weapon-grade uranium. They had a longer-term vision on plutonium, but the focus was on weapon-grade uranium. The other, the next pillar is making the weapon itself, the nuclear weaponization pillar. And the third is the delivery system, which for Iran is a, a ballistic missile. And the JCPOA, um, as Andrea just described, kicked the can down the road on the fissile material. I mean, Fordow, when Iran was caught, became a civil, so-called civilian site. Within weeks, it can be turned back into a site to make weapon-grade uranium. And so the JCPOA contains in itself the destruction of, of its own purpose in the sense that if the JCPOA sunsets happen, Iran can emerge fully capable of making weapon-grade uranium on a large scale under its um, legitimized by the JCPOA. The JCPOA didn't affect the weaponization. They, they didn't allow the IA. It didn't mandate or enforce or um, create a mechanism for the IA to, to really get to the bottom. Does Iran have a nuclear weapons program or not? And then dismantle it like it did in, in countries like South Africa, uh, Taiwan. It, it witnessed it post facto the destruction of those programs. It, so it, it knows what one looks like, it knows how to take them apart, and, and it knows how to verify their destruction. JCPOA did essentially nothing on that pillar and certainly didn't do anything on the missile pillar. And Iran has been free to develop um, it, its ballistic missiles. And in terms of verification, you point out, first of all, there are a lot of sites that IAEA hasn't known about, hasn't been able to visit. But even under the JCPOA, there were disclosed sites that could be visited, but no military facilities. And I think we know, I think you know, I think the archives show that it's at military facilities that most of the illicit and secret nuclear work took place in the past, which might lead one to believe in the, in the present or the future, that's also yeah. where the work no, that's would right. be taking place. No? And, and, the, and the, a lot's known about Iran. Um, the post-crash program organizations headed by the same leader of this crash program, Mohsen Fakhrizadeh. Um, most of the people who worked in, in this crash program went on to work in those organizations. So, so the, and, and the names are known, FIDOT, SADOT. The most recent manifestation is SPND, is the uh, acronym in, in English of the Farsi words. And so it's known, many times it's known where those, some of their work is done. And the IAEA's never visited any of those places. 
Iran has always said no. They never allowed the IA to interview Mohsen Fakhrizadeh um, until his death last December and, and, or any other members. So it's really been um, a failure of the, of the negotiators to, to come up with a mechanism that mm. allows the IA to do its job. Well, you mentioned SPND. Maybe just say quickly so people understand what that what that stand, not what it stands for, right? Because it's far, but what it what it means, what goes on under that rubric. Yeah, well, it, the um, the way it's been characterized by foreign governments is that it's a place where the nuclear weaponization skills continue, um, and so if there was work that needed to be done on particular nuclear weapons components, you would find that work done via these post-Amon organizations, post-crash program organizations. Um, SPND under Fakhrizadeh grew to cover many military um, research areas. I mean, from armed drones, he worked on ballistic missiles, um, all kinds of advanced conventional weaponry, but in it was also this kernel or this residual nuclear weapons, weaponization work. And it, and any one year, it's anyone's guess whether something's active or not. Um, but overall, it was the place where this, this capability was maintained and protected against incursion by the IAEA. But it couldn't, they couldn't protect it against incursions by, by Israel. Andrew, David mentioned that what they seem to be looking for is the ability to produce nuclear weapons on demand, have the capability. Why, I mean, I'm not sure you have an answer for this. I, I, either of you do, but why would they want to have an on-demand ability and not simply warehouse bunches of them? It's just because if you warehouse bunches of nuclear weapons, they're more vulnerable to attack, or you can use your ability to produce them on short order um, sort of to, to blackmail and threaten those who want to, or, or coerce uh, others, Europeans, Americans, others into uh, doing things your way. What, what's, what's the, is there a rationale you understand to that? Yeah, I think, you know, once they cross the line and go out of their NPT obligations, you know, they face the risk of military action and response. They also are allowed to sort of intimidate their neighbors, like you said, without fully crossing that line. Um, and they really have to run the risk that they'll be caught. So, I mean, their program is obviously very penetrated. Um, they've had scientists been assassinated over the years. They've had the archive removed. Uh, they've had sabotage recently, uh, potentially through Israel, Israeli operations. So I think, uh, that's a good reason that they haven't, you know, they just have to worry about the repercussions. And if I David, could, two things. If I could add to yeah, that. Um, one is, is that there, the efforts to stop Iran have had successes. I mean, it was a success that they didn't build these weapons under the crash program. We didn't know it happened at the time, but it, but it did. And so it, we're in a much better position that they didn't build them then. then. Um, they struggled to get- This is a two, after two, 2003. So, okay. so they, right, right, right. They, they also, they were short or they, they were lacking the ability to make weapon grade uranium. And, and they struggled to keep their plans secret. They tried with Fordow and based on my own interviews with, with the inspectors who went into the plant 
uh, initially after it was discovered by Western intelligence and, and revealed that the plant was designed to make weapon grade uranium. But once the Iranians were caught, they then repurposed it and redesigned it to make low enriched uranium. Um, and I mentioned it could be reconverted back to weapon grade uranium, but again, they're caught. And so they, so I think the, their strategy has evolved that, they, that the best they can do is this program to be ready to prepare. And, and what they're striving for is to shorten the time between a decision to build and building. And that's part of the reason why the sunsets of the JCPOA are so dangerous, because if they expire, then Iran can generate the weapon-grade uranium in just a few short weeks. Um, it'll, it'll have thought about and worked on building the nuclear weapons for additional many years. Its ballistic missiles will be more capable. And so it'll be able to deploy an arsenal very rapidly, long before a military strike could be ordered. And so, so I think that's, their, that's the game plan you have to worry about. And, and, and that the world is, has been successful in inhibiting their ability to cross that threshold. I think what Andrea said is also true, that they, they have to think through the consequences of doing it. Do, to get to where they want to go, do they need to test a nuclear weapon or can they rely on computer simulations? Yeah, they can rely. It's a very, it's kind of interesting to follow through it because I've seen it in other countries. They, they created a, a, a theoretical group that was studying the, the wherewithal of how nuclear explosives work. Um, they, they, in that, you, you think about how, how explosives will work. You have come up with experiments. They had four sites dedicated to carrying out experiments related to the nuclear weapons work that were tied to the theoretical work. And so they, they were developing a, a weapon, and they did, that does not require full-scale nuclear testing. They wanted that test site, and, and one is if you can test, you can improve your skills. You can also demonstrate your capabilities. So certainly the, probably the first order it would have, the test site would have served a political purpose rather than a technical one. Um, but if they could test, they would develop more sophisticated weapons. So, Andrea, I want to talk for a second about the proliferation implications uh, of this, because of this, if the Iranians get where they want to go on this, what is the likely response of, say, the Saudis? the Emiratis, or the Turks, or maybe the Egyptians, and put us, we'll put aside the Israelis and come back, come back to that. And by the way, other allies of the U.S. around the world who are under significant restrictions that under the JCPOA and its sunset provisions, Iran will no longer be. In other words, we're kind of saying our allies have to be very strict in terms of not developing nuclear weapons, but our enemies, those saying death to America, Ah, we can go easy on them, let them have a little more latitude. I don't think that's going to play very well with, say, the Saudis, is it? No, it's not. I think we already see them moving toward developing a uranium fuel cycle, if you believe uh, U.S. media reports. It sounds like U.S. intelligence is concerned about it and is talking to journalists, uh, potentially that they see two sites at least uh, hidden in the desert in Saudi Arabia, that they may be starting to hedge their bets because they expect Iran will emerge in just a few short years with a massive enrichment program. I think your list is exactly right. The Saudis, the Turks, maybe the Egyptians, 
Uh, we have the UAE, the United Arab Emirates under the gold standard. So they, they have committed in a US nuclear energy cooperation agreement called a one, two, three agreement, not to develop enrichment reprocessing. You know, what's, what's to stop them from reneging on that commitment one day if they feel like they need to match Iran's capabilities? I don't think they're gonna stand by. And then of course, the, 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 the big question is the Israelis because the Israelis feel that they are existential, that their exist, very existence is threatened by a nuclear um, Islamic Republic of Iran. And this is not, they're not surmising, they've been threatened, their, their existence has been threatened. It's been said Israel is a one nuclear bomb country, we can destroy it and wipe it out um, with, with, a, with a single missile that manages to land, um, which may be more possible than the 4,000 or so that Hamas with their, Iran's support managed to launch. Um, Israel's got a difficult uh, set of decisions to make over the next few years, and their, their decisions are complicated by the JCPOA and the sunset provisions, which mean deadlines in a very uh, literal sense of the word, right, David? No, that's right. And, and, and it's, they've, I mean, it's often people in the past posited this, you know, either a deal or war, and Israel's been searching and developing a third way. Um, and and you know, whether one agrees with killing scientists or not, you know, I personally don't like that strategy, but it's aimed at delaying their program, weakening it, taking, and, and it's surgical in, in when you look at the explosions uh, or the assassinations, the people killed um, fact figure very prominently in this crash program uh, literature, and they also appear in post-crash program um, investigations by the International Atomic Energy Agency, uh, destroying this uh, centrifuge assembly facility at Natanz. Iran was could have used that today to make thousands of advanced centrifuges a year. Now they can't. They're limited in the number they can produce. And the attempt to knock out the Natanz underground enrichment plant worked so-so in terms of, if you're judging it by ending the operation, it appeared to have destroyed about half the centrifuges based on the recent IA report. Um, but Iran deployed more advanced centrifuges and so the, the effect on what we call breakout was probably not that great. But again, not every operation succeeds 100%, but the point is that they're gonna continue if there is a JCPOA, because I, I think in the book we conclude it's an unstable arrangement, they're probably going to continue with these activities. One of the problems they're going to face, according to the, their own people, is, is that Iran's programs to, develops under the JCPOA, taking out or weakening um, that program requires more military effort. And so at some point, this third way could just start to look like a war. Mm -hmm. Andrea, we got in, uh, we've got elections coming up in Iran, and I'm careful when I say that because Iran is a dictatorship. It's got a supreme leader. He's a supreme leader, the dictator for life. Uh, not anybody who wants to run can simply uh, can simply run. He and his uh, his advisors decide who's allowed to run, and they there can be hundreds or even thousands of people who want to run. They can't. So it's not really. It, there's an element of there, there are elections, but I, I don't want people to think it's a democracy. But I guess 
with the question I'm sort of driving at is the elections coming up. Do they play a role as you understand it? Do you think that it matters who becomes the next president under the Supreme Leader um, in Iran? Do you think the Iranians want to delay agreement on allowing the Americans to rejoin the JCPOA, which is, I think, how they view it, until after the election or get it done beforehand? Do you have any sense? Of, uh, these are hard questions, I know, but any sense of that based on your reading of the situation? You know, my sense is that the Supreme Leader does want to see who, you know, how the harder liner uh, takes to this agreement. Uh, I think he, he he does want their blessing on it. I mean, I, I do think I do think because of the way that they're slow rolling the negotiations currently, that they are waiting until after the election to see what happens. But ultimately, they do need sanctions relief. Their economy is in a very bad place. Uh, you know, we've gutted into their foreign reserves through the Trump administration's maximum pressure campaign. Though the Biden administration is not enforcing it as, as strictly, we still do have many, many sanctions on, on the country and they can't export much oil right now. So I think they will be forced to make a deal no matter what. You know, David, the, the Biden administration says they want a deal that's then they want to improve on the JCPOA, want it to be longer and stronger and broader. Puzzles me how that happens uh, once you give re- sanctions relief, once you say you begin the flow of money over there. As, as I read the history and when, this, when sanctions were relieved in 2013 in exchange for the interim agreement, the U, after that, the U.S. made a lot of concessions. I'm not sure the Iranians made any concessions whatsoever from 2013 to 2015 when the JCPOA was, uh, was concluded. I, I, it doesn't seem like they've learned from that experience. Once sanctions are lifted, assuming they can be and assuming they are, once the money flows, there's, there's no reason for the for, for the Iran's rulers to give a longer, stronger, or broader agreement, meaning that they don't support Hezbollah and Hamas and the Houthi rebels and do all and all the other thing and do, do what they're doing in Syria. Am I, am I wrong about that? Well, the the Iranians had two red lines described to me by the negotiators of the JPA that one they were not going to allow access to military sites and two they were not going to allow the destruction of centrifuges or nuclear equipment and and they stuck to that and they got and they won on that the us wanted to focus on reducing the stockpiles of uranium and centrifuges uh, and the us got that and so the but in terms of build back what we've seen in the last year is because of the the victories of the Iranians, they've been able to build back very rapidly because they, again, didn't destroy centrifuges. And and we don't really know what's going on in parts of their military complex. And so so I think if the Iranians, I think, did a very good job of preserving their capabilities in the JCPOA, the Iranians have been shown to make concessions under great pressure. The, mod, the archive shows that. The fact they didn't build nuclear weapons in 03, it was because of pressure, not because of somehow a sudden conversion of the Supreme Leader to, to believing in a nuclear-free world. And so, and, and you, you had negotiations under the JCPOA initially because of intense sanctions. You have those sanctions now, and Iran makes concessions under pressure. If that pressure disappears, then I would share your view. Why would Iran do later 
what it says it won't do now. Um, and so you don't know if the pressure would work, but turning up the pressure, delaying the relief um, seems to make more sense to me than giving in to just reestablishing the JCPOA without, I would use the word fixing it or replacing it. Um, and then hoping that Iran will make concessions later. I just don't see the mechanism. If, if the Biden people would explain it, you know, I'm certainly open to listening. Um, my understanding of Secretary of State Blinken's appearance in front of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee the other day, uh, he wasn't that convincing. And, and he didn't seem to have any description of what stronger would mean, if, even if they get to the point of getting the Iranians to discuss something beyond the JCPOA. I mean, longer is obvious, although Iran has not, has in fact said it won't do that. Um, but, but stronger, you know, and one of the things that I would argue was, is that if, if the Biden administration is sincere, um, wire into the JCPOA negotiations that the IAEA's concerns have to be addressed, not just in a, subs in a procedural way, uh, in the sense of having meetings that go nowhere, but actually the condition would be that the IA has to have the assurances that it's a peaceful program before you remove the sanctions. That would make the deal much stronger. And maybe as we begin to wrap up, in the news right now, there are various difficulties that the IAEA is having, uh, Andrea. Um, in terms of access, in terms of verification, in terms of, just can you capsulize or summarize what, what this controversy is about and, and also why, among others, the Europeans who have remained in the JCPOA, as has the Islamic Republic of Iran, they did not withdraw when the U.S. did, they've not been pushing terribly hard in terms of either getting the IAEA where they need to go to verify what they need to verify or to penalize Iran's rulers for the various violations of the agreement that have taken place over the past uh, couple of years. Well, that's right. So the big monitoring uh, issue started in February. Iran decided that it was no longer going to implement the, what's called the IEA's additional protocol or EAP. Uh, so that entails the IEA being able to go conduct complementary short-term visits at uh, sort of like ancillary nuclear facilities where they build centrifuges and things like that. The, uh, the JCPOA also put in extra monitoring uh, that, that wasn't available under Iran's safeguards agreements or the AP um, to sort of like take measurements of Iran's enrichment levels, uh, real-time recordings. Um, so the IA was put in a, in a in a bad position of having to negotiate sort of like a bridge monitoring agreement where they would keep recording data, taking these measurements, but Iran would keep the, the data until it got sanctions relief. So that, that agreement was reached for three months from February until May. Uh, they just extended it. It was a tough discussion and negotiation uh, reportedly by the, uh, the IA's director general, Rafael Grossi. Um, he didn't seem very happy about this because, in effect, he's being extorted. He's being told that, you know, unless something happens, his, his information that he uses to maintain continuity of knowledge is going to be erased. So 
between that, between all of Iran's advances over the last two years, really, it started drawing down its nuclear commitments in mid-2019. Um, it, it, it augmented those drawdowns right when the, the Biden administration was coming into office. It's now producing for the first time in history 60% enriched uranium. Uh, it's deploying hundreds of advanced centrifuges. And you're right, Europe has not been pushing back against this. And the Biden administration says that the way forward is to get sanctions relief back in play, in effect, to, to pay them to stop doing these things instead of addressing the root of the problem. David, as you wrap up here, any other points you want to emphasize that uh, you've made or, or points that you haven't made because I didn't ask uh, good enough questions? Well, one point I'd like to make is just supplement what Andrea said. There, there's The IEA has, um, largely because of the ARCOM, was able to, in a sense, reinvigorate its investigation of Iran's um, potential nuclear weapons activities, certainly in the past, possibly today. And they were able to use the archive to focus on, on certain sites that they guessed would have nuclear material or had equipment that had contaminated with nuclear material. They pursued that, and they were able to show that three sites fall in that category. And, and Iran has just categorically refused to cooperate with the agency. And the agency has sounded the alarm. I mean, they, they, they can't do much more. They said, look, we can't tell you that Iran's program is peaceful anymore. And we're getting more worried that it's not. And the world is not responding. And so, but you always have to have evidence. And, and the IA has just tabled very concrete evidence. Um, and and the I would say the EU and the US are trying to say, okay, well, this is a parallel effort. You know, we'll settle this over time, we'll condemn it, we'll, you know, but we won't pass a resolution in the Security Council to impose sanctions. We'll try to get the JCPOA. What I would say, the point I would want to emphasize is, is that that the JCPOA negotiations, if they are going to be credible should be wiring in that, that before any US sanctions are, re, are removed, that the IA's concerns are addressed and that Iran has to reveal its past nuclear weapons activities and it has to show the IA that it's, it's not conducting nuclear weapons activities today. It's a fairly major step, but it is, the IA's basically put that on the table and is the world gonna walk away and ignore this very concrete evidence, or is it going to deal with it? And, and it really, it strikes me, it should be up to French, the British, the German. They should be pushing for this because these negotiations, as I understand, are indirect. The, the Iranians will not deign to sit down at the same table with the Americans because they claim that the sanctions are economic terrorism. So they're not even, it's not, it's not even that our negotiators, the US negotiators, can say this over the table. Um, but it seems like they're. They're, they're unlikely to they're unlikely to do it because I don't know because they're 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 not particularly courageous when it comes to the to to uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran or I would say uh, other enemies uh, and self-declared enemies of the West. I'll leave it <laughs> I'll leave it there unless you want to comment on that. Well, I, yeah, I could the only comment I could make is is that that they've the Europeans are so scared that war could happen, that they 
concede to Iran. And, and the Trump administration essentially didn't have enough time to see if maximum pressure would work. Um, and so you now have these forces that, that are, are more scared of war and really believe this idea, it's war or the deal. And, and I think that's a, a very major mm. mistake because there, there are other ways forward. It certainly gives leverage to Iran's rulers over everybody else in the world if they're not afraid of that of, of, of that possibility, and we and we are. Well, I'm going to wrap up here. The book, of course, is Iran's perilous pursuit of nuclear weapons. Um, I will personally, if, if President Biden doesn't have a copy, if his advisors don't, I'll buy them all copies. They can have Kindle or print, whatever oh, they you. want. Just <laughs> let me know. I'll send it right over to them. Uh, I'll FedEx it, put it on my bill. David, thank you for your work. It's hugely important. It's important to the world. And and, and we're all grateful. And thanks for being on the show with us. Thank you so much, Andrea, for the work you continue to do at FDD. We value that so much. Thanks to all of you for listening in and being with us today here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.